Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is your host, Lorraine Nightheart. You have reached Venus Unplugged. What we do here is we explore the uh, archetype of Venus, goddess of love and her sidekick, Eros, relatedness, creative energy. And next couple of weeks, we are going to be exploring the scapegoat complex. Now, one thing that's very interesting about Eros, which is often forgotten, Eros is duly sexed. It's both male and female. So it has the anima and the animus in balance. And that's the creative force that's always um, in heaven and earth and moving around and allowing us to feel alive or eroticized. You know, it's that fire that uh, comes to all of us, hopefully. And uh, I've been thinking the last couple of weeks thinking a lot about the shadow of America. Like, what are we really up to here? And how uh, can we as individuals be able to use this energy in a way that is uh, creative and progressive and helpful and start to understand besides the pointing of fingers, but really what forces are we dealing with here? And start to think about, you know, scapegoating. Why is it a goat? How did this happen? Yes, I know the kind of general, yeah, you know, the sacrificial goat and all of that, but why? Why the goat? What was going on? Now we know, you know, there is the, called the scapegoat complex, which I will be getting to. Uh, and uh, today's talk is about the pharmacon. Now, pharmacon, P-H-A-R-M-A-K-O-N. That's the root of pharmacy, to heal. Pharm is to heal. So the ritual of the scapegoat and killing the scapegoat, putting the sins on the scapegoat, okay, uh, was called the pharmacon. So it all starts to make sense. But before I get into the scapegoat complex and how we're kind of dancing in the dark with that one, uh, I, I came across, was reading about oracles, which are always my favorite, Thing in the world, oracles. All right. So in earlier times, there was the the Sibyl. All right, she she was the Delphic oracle, and uh, she f- frequently um, entered a trance state. And then this the, the gift of tongues, which you know, which have a shamanic ring about it, and her. Successor was the Pythia, P-Y-T-H-I-A. And it was reported that often out of her body, the archetypal seer was said to become greatly perturbed during prophetic ecstasies, which is also Eros, and was very favored in those times, possibly because it was deemed to be more impressive than the dramatic time-probing techniques so, what 
you know what? For, for me, wondering how did how did all these goats? So she would go into this epic state. Now, anyone who's been touched in any way by shamans or otherworldly possibilities or, you know, even in, in dreams or in nightmares, we, we, we thrash and we move because there is a kind of form of possession. We are possessed by an archetype. Uh, and we all carry one archetypal, if not many, that we live through both consciously and unconsciously. And part of uh, what we call consciousness is becoming aware what is what what is the one that uh, we favor or rules us or we are dedicated to or perhaps through an ancestral realm that uh we came through and uh, just like there's always somebody in the family who is the scapegoat who is the possessor of the family power driven um complex of course, they never cop to the power driven. They're holier than thou. And the scapegoat is the one who, who, who carries the shadow of the family. But when it's when we start seeing it in its wholeness, which is the whole point, is to be able to see the shadow and the light. Um, and any time we enter any archetypal realm, even touch the hem of the garment. It, it, we try to explain it in a linear sense, but you know, any archetypal energy is happening all at the same time. Shadow and light, you know, opposites, it's all happening at once. So it te- depends on how we tumble into or out of these forces that we get a hint, which is probably why it's so terrifying, particularly at first, not to mention incredibly confusing. Um, and uh, so in ancient times it was the goats who first discovered the oracle which is why the the people of Delphi still prefer a goat when they sacrifice uh, before a consultation they're not doing that now they do it with one another okay so and the discovery is said to have come about from in a following manner and I'm reading here from a book called The Greek Traditions by Murray Hope, and she's a very well-known uh, magician and uh, esoteric teacher. So here she writes, The discovery is said to have come from the following manner. At the spot where the uh, the most holy room of the temple uh, to which we enter was only allowed to certain people and under special conditions or specified conditions. So this temple, there was once a chasm in the ground before Delphi was yet a city, and the goats used to graze. And whenever one of them approached this chasm and looked down into it, she would begin leaping about in an amazing fashion and bleeding, beating, in quite a different voice than her normal one. And when the shepherd, marveling at this wild uh, behavior, examined the chasm to find out what caused it, he himself was afflicted in 
truth behave for all the world like people possessed and begin to prophesize the future. Later news of what happened to those who visited the chasm began, began to spread among the peasants, and they flocked to the spot in large numbers, anxious to put the miracle to the test. And whenever one of them drew near, he fell into a trance. Thus, it was the place itself to be regarded as miraculous. And they believed that the oracle came to them from Paya G, the earth goddess. For a time, uh, those who came uh, to, to seek advice and proclaim oracles to one another. But later on, when many people in their ecstasy had hurled themselves into the chasm and disappeared, not good for, you know, the, the growth of the community. That's where everybody's flinging themselves down the mountain. It seemed uh, good to those who lived uh, in those parts for the protection of others that one woman should be appointed the sole prophetess who along uh, should pronounce the oracles. They therefore constructed a device so that she could sit in safety with the spirit entered her and utter her oracles to those who sought advice from her. This device was supported by three legs, hence its name, the tripod, and indeed uh, the bronze uh, tripods that have uh, today resembled in most in most cases. So the Delphi or the Pythia would, after ritual, there were these fumes and would, would climb this tripod, sit upon that, go into this ecstatic state or near madness. It's always hard to tell. And um, so it was the copying of what the goats were about. So that's the early uh, root of how the scapegoating began. And then, of course, it became more sophisticated. Now, one of the things about modern-day scapegoating and people who are identified to that archetype is that, you know, we don't, there's just a lot of pointing fingers and blaming one another and, you know, projecting shadow and all of this. But there's no divinity behind it. There's no sacredness. See, originally it was an act of the sacred. We we were, I don't know if we were appeasing, but we certainly were bringing consciousness as much as we could to divinity, to the shadow of God or the gods and goddesses. See, it's very easy to scapegoat because that's a projection of our own shadow. Very easy to see. And if we're working on consciousness, if we can see, oh, and, and you know, it could also be a, a positive thing. Oh, that person has everything and I have nothing. That's a, that's a form of scapegoating, too, because then they've got to carry your gold. I've got enough problems in life. They don't have to carry your gold. So people don't realize that, too. I mean, it's lovely to acknowledge another's influence, but but if they carry all your good and you're just a lowly creepy human or something, uh, come on, that's a burden. So this 
scapegoat concept is what we are doing a lot of now. Now, I'm not saying that the shoe doesn't fit in some circumstances, but is that all we're going to do? Just fling this precious energy that contains divinity in it and just fling it all over the place and not use it in a way for the sacred of our own transformation. It's kind of the active ingredient or it's a way of honoring our ancestors because we inherit from our ancestors qualities of shadow and light. And once again, shadow is not necessarily negative. It's just dark. It's unseen. So it's the shadow of the light or the light of the shadow or the yin and the yang. So the scapegoating archetype, uh, you know, it would be so easy if something or someone was completely evil, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, uh, and then we could just point our finger and that would be true. But no one is completely evil. I mean, some people get real close or some situations get real close, but not completely. So if we can take back that that um, scapegoating that we're doing and bring it more to consciousness in our own life and saying, okay, I'm going to see what am I really up to here? Because when we scapegoat and we project and know it's that person's fault or uh, uh, let's say somebody ghosts you and stops talking to you and it's like, oh, no, they're wrong. But, you know, they have a reason that they ghost you. A definite one. And, you know, obviously don't feel it's worth it to express why because it's going to go nowhere. So we, we, we can see the shadow or others are perceiving in a way, but don't stop and say, well, gee, maybe uh, there's something going on here. Maybe I didn't recognize uh, my behavior, which finally became too much, or just the straw that broke the camel's back. And how do we work with this concept of the of the scapegoat archetype and its purpose? But if it doesn't have the element of the transcendent function or the divinity behind it or our ancestors behind it or within it. It just becomes useless, neurotic suffering. So that's what Jung felt most, you know, who people who are just, you know, neurotic is they refuse to suffer. It's everybody else's fault never one's own. They just won't go towards that, uh, the pain that transforms, the wound that heals. So it's, it's not about the more we suffer, the better we become. That's not true either. It's about consciously suffering, knowing. And that's why there are ritual states. Now, we can make this up within our own selves and we can... Uh, find holidays or, or do it astrologically or that we can create these rites of passage. I mean, we have them in the collective. Now, when they're built up on the collective, 
Uh, they do have like a, the, the ancestral energy, but it doesn't have to be that because we want to work with what is, and of course this is the season of the scapegoat, you know, the suffering savior. What does this mean to us personally? And how do we carry, if one is so inclined, or sometimes one is just assigned the family scapegoat. You didn't even know it happened. And uh, you carry it through, and you you don't stop to think like, what am I doing here? And have this happen once again. Not the pointing fingers and blaming, but the really looking at this. And then, of course, it's nice to have a little bit of history about that, that the, the goats were the run. These, you know, the the Irish say every four legged is a saint. I tend to believe that. So here's the goats, and they're dulling, bleeding, and bleating. Uh, they discover, their instinctual nature discovers there is something great coming up from Mother Earth. And then people begin to follow. Now, the modern-day scapegoat is a little bit different. So that's... there, There is a belief that a person or uh, groups of people are accused of causing misfortune. If it wasn't for my neighbor, this town would be fabulous. That kind of stuff. And it serves to, or, you know, women or men, you know, we can scapegoat gender, which happens quite often. Um, Instead of saying, wait a second, what, what, what am I projecting over here? Because you need that energy that you're projecting. It's got gold in it. And if it's just projected onto somebody else, or it's like shooting arrows, um, and it also produces a lot of um, unconscious envy, is also scapegoating others. They've got all the good, and because they have all the good, there's none left for me. It's a very primitive belief that the heart of the collective unconscious. And we're, I mean, we're never going to run out of energy about this. So it's not something we heal. Uh, you know, it's not like, a, oh, I've done the shadow. It's like, there's no such thing. It's always, it's like silver. We just clean it up, and then more tarnish starts magically coming up. So it keeps us in the game. Now, you know, once we leave the planet, you know, then we're beyond the, the, the realm of archetypes and opposites until we incarnate again. So these, this group, these scapegoaters, what they do for the community or the world, you know, or their own responsibilities. So the scapegoaters, they don't want to own their responsibilities, so they project this on the mistakes, the mishaps, the misfortune, whatever it may be, onto people who are consciously or unconsciously carrying the scapegoat archetype. So it strengthens the scapegoat's sense of power and righteousness. 
if it wasn't for them or that or this or that, everything would just be hunky-dory. Well, no, because there is shadow and light and good and evil, and they're soulmates. They belong together. And we need to, once again, when we're working with archetypal energies, everything is happening all at once. It's kind of like a psychic collage. And the more that our hearts and minds and psyches are able to hold the tension of the opposites, not choose one over the other, will give us the capacity for more insight, to see more, because we're not eliminating. We're not colorblind to the, the whole vastness of the archetypal world all happening at once. So in in the, the current world, you know, the scapegoat leaves us of our relationship to the transpersonal dimension of life. Remember that gods are behind it because in the present, we have come to function with the perverted form of the archetype, one that ignores the gods and we blame the scapegoat or the devil for life's evil. And this is, this is very important to consider, to look at. And the more you kind of pull away this, away from this, the more that's your homework to work on. One is how we kind of like go unconscious, like, oh, gee, what would you say? I didn't remember that. You know, we, we've got to underline that. We have to look at that. So that's what ha- that's what's happened. That's why it falls so short and it's and so terribly cruel and there are people as i said who just unwittingly are the suffering servants but if there's no gods it's a perversion not the scapegoat it's not the goat's fault the goat is the carrier of the archetype but if there's no archetype and there's just blame, we haven't, you know, we haven't evolved in any particular way. So originally, the uh, the scapegoat was a human or an animal. It was a victim chosen for sacrifice to the underworld god and to appropriate the god's anger and to heal the community. So that's why goats and devils and Pan, I mean, not Pan, excuse me, Pluto and, and you know, Hades, all that, it all gets mixed up uh, as as evil. So that is, a, you know, when that happens, really what's happening, it's, it, it's where there's no individuation or capacity, once again, for the tension of the opposite. So it all gets mixed up. And we think it's all one because we're trying to perceive the archetype linearly, but we can't. It's holographic. But the more we work with uh, and become looser, you know, or kind of can put the ego aside that needs to know and concretize and make it logic and 
kind of it's more like poetry. We move in and out of those images. Um, it, we can start to refine. You know, this isn't the devil. And, and what is the devil? Why does the devil live spell backwards? You know, there's a beautiful uh, image of the tension of the opposites or the play on words. We're looking at it. We see it. We un- the unconscious knows, but it doesn't dawn on us. Or let's say when the devil card comes up in, in the tarot, it's the male and the female aren't facing one another. So the devil is the part that gets us to um, live against our own integration. The union of the opposites, the most basic and fundamental, is uh, male and female. So when something comes in or someone comes in, so rather than turning and integrating those energies through, let's say, Eros, who is both male and female, we judge it and we name it. We can't take it in. And certainly, you know, the one that just blows everybody apart is uh, God having a shadow. That just does not go down easily. But, you know, the more you start working with it, it's like, yes, there's shadow and light. It's an it's evolutionary process. So this scapegoating, so the human being, you know, they get set up. And so the scapegoat was the pharmacon or the healing agent. So what we don't realize is when we're projecting, we are assigning that scapegoat to be the healing agent. Only it falls gravely short from that because we don't realize what it is. We just project, and we think it's the devil, but we don't realize it's the healing agent. Or, at once, it was the healing agent. That was the original. Always try to at least research origin, whether it be the etymology of the meaning of a word, because so often we're using words that, you know, words are power. Absolutely power. Um, I think that's why as we mature or hopefully get a little wiser, we use our words wisely and not very often because of the power of them. So this uh, goat or human being, sometimes it was a couple, um, depended on the community who was, uh, who was going to be sacrificed. So in the scapegoat ritual, it's dedicated to and identified with the God. Its function is to bring transpersonal dimension to aid and renew the community. For the community acknowledged that it was embedded in and dependent on transpersonal forces. The scapegoat ritual, like others, were used to enrich meaning and call attention to levels of existence incorporated evil and death along with life and goodness into a single grand unifying pattern. 
So that's a lot, to say the least. And if we don't have that unifying pattern conscious within us, we're just tar and feathering everyone, and most of all, our own self. The very shadow we need, the very aspect we need for that transfunction, we're giving it away uselessly. So I'm going to be talking about this for the next couple of weeks because once again, you know, I kind of stir around and I start to realize like, wow, this is really important. We need to work with this. So uh, we need to work with the you know the efficiency of, of of a magical ritual, but too often the unconscious or the grand unifying pattern, the transpersonal matrix in which our actions are embedded, we we don't pay attention to that. So we only see the material or the secular framework of actions, and we ignore the spiritual dimension. There is a spiritual dimension to scapegoating. There's a spiritual dimension if you are carrying uh, the archetype of the scapegoating. It is the holy wound, the sacrificial one for a greater good, not eternal suffering. So the belief that it could a catastrophe can be uh, stopped. Uh, the, the whole concept of baptism, the whole, you know, whatever we're doing, it can't be stopped. We may be able to be more aware of its presence and then we experience it, you know, the, the desire to avert catastrophe, which is a lot of what's going on in America right now. Have a huge desire to advert catastrophe, and that's the basis of religious and magical rituals. So let's, if we can, or if you choose to pick the task, is let's start looking at this in a different way. So we're going to get something out of this scapegoat ritual because it's gone bad and it's gone viral. So till next week, we will continue the Famicom. Um, I'll start again on Mondays last week. I don't know. I got lost in the in the greatness of life. All right, my loves. Next week, ta-da.